thank you very much for being here. My name is Richard Dahlstrom. I'm uh, the teaching pastor here at Green Lake and the senior pastor of Bethany Community Church, this coalition of communities that gather across our city every Sunday. We are honored that each of you have taken time out of your full lives to join us this evening because we believe and have hoped and are praying to this moment that this will be a pivotal moment, not only for our own community here, but uh, pivotal for our city as well. Uh, our teaching team, each of our lead pastors, were gathered this summer, a particular week we were on retreat in central Washington, and the week that we were together, uh, there was a shooting in Louisiana, and then there was a shooting in Minnesota, and then when we were together on, I believe it was a Thursday evening, uh, someone picked up on their phone that there was also a, uh, a mass police shooting in Dallas, and we watched in the room in which we were staying uh, on the large screen as we watched all of this unfold. And I will say to you, on behalf of those leaders, it was a very moving moment for us in the sense that we realized that uh, we have been on the sidelines on a very important conversation for a long time. And we prayed together, and we determined that night that it is our desire not to be part of a problem, but to be leaders in a solution to the extent that God enables us. And so our desire has led to this moment, and our hope and prayer is that this evening is one step in that direction. So thank you very much for being here this evening. Here's a reading from the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord. And do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations." Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days." The word of the Lord. Thank you, Nicole. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Pastor Scott, and I have the privilege of being one of the co uh, 
uh, laborers on an initiative that Bethany, between all campuses, has engaged on this year around reconciliation and justice, an initiative uh, to begin to, to make the church the center point of hope in the city again and leading on conversation that we really need to address. And I have the great honor of introducing Romanita Hairston Overstreet this evening. Um, I heard Romanita, along with some other leaders from Bethany Community Church, give an impassioned address uh, at uh, Mount Zion Baptist Church this fall, hosted by Union Gospel Mission, uh, to pray together and plan together on how the church can lead on issues of injustice and not stay silent. Uh, I was changed by Romanita's talk. We have a responsibility as the church to deal with reality. And much of the last year has been very difficult with issues of race. It has hurt and it has been painful. It has been brutal at times. We lament the racial discord in our nation, in our city. We lament that for many minorities, they have felt alone on the journey of faith by the church. We lament that as a church, we've struggled at times with engaging in the plight of our marginalized brothers, sisters, friends, and neighbors. We know that as we lament, we begin to be aware. David said in 2 Samuel that lament and praise should be taught and worked into our lives. And reflecting on the teaching of lament, Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, we need to teach one another how to take seriously these great cadences of pain, some coming from hate, some coming from love, so that we're not diminished, but we are deepened by them. We need to find God in them and beauty put form and rhythm and song to them. Pain isn't the worst thing, Peterson writes. Being hated isn't the worst thing. Being separated from the one you love isn't the worst thing. Death, even, isn't the worst thing. The worst thing is failing to deal with reality and becoming disconnected from what is actual. The worst thing is trivializing the honorable, desecrating the sacred. For, he continues, a failure to lament is a failure to connect. Lament, which is making the most of our loss without getting bogged down in it, is a primary way of staying in the story. God is telling this story, remember. It's a large, capacious story. He doesn't look kindly on our editorial deletions, but he delights in our poetry. Romanita Hairston Overstreet is a woman who speaks truth as poetry. She has a way of preaching hope into what can be a very dismal situation. We experienced that this morning when she addressed our staff, and taught us a lot about mercy out of the book of Matthew. Romanita takes the truth of scripture and narrates how the hope of the Bible can help us as a church rebuild the city and rebuild our relationships and rebuild the brokenness along racial lines as brothers and sisters of the same Lord and of the same faith and of the same global church. It is my honor to introduce my new friend, Romanita Harrison Overstreet. Will you give her a big round of applause? Good evening, good evening, good evening. It is such a joy to be with you and to see all of your faces. Um, it is a wonderful thing when brothers and sisters dwell together in love and when the Lord of all creation can be lifted up and when his people come together to ask the question, what Lord might you say to us? And so Journey with me tonight as we ask the question, what Lord might you say to us? Before I get started, I want to acknowledge the love of my life who's in this room, Dwight Overstreet. Babe, raise your hand for the people so they can see you over there. Um, I love me some him, as the young people say. 
and I am glad to have him here with me um, tonight. Um, we are the parents of five, but I always say I am the wife of one, and um, it's a great pleasure to be journeying with him in this. Um, I want to tell you a little story about my last few months, because oftentimes when a person is here on the stage, you often think, oh, they've got it. They've arrived. They're going to come and they're going to bring a divine light and it's going to bring all the revelation that we need. I want you to know I'm a person on a journey who wants to take you on a journey with me. And I want to invite you to be open to the journey because no matter how much we know about the topic of reconciliation and justice, there is always more to do, more to know, and more to learn. And I realized that over the last summer, I was telling the staff and the leadership team earlier that in the midst of everything that happened after the death, the murder, the police shootings, the shootings of young men, and then there was the election, I found myself quiet. And my husband's here, and he can be a witness and tell you, when I'm quiet, something must be going on. <laughs> because you can probably tell already by the movement of my hands and the tone of my voice, quiet is not really what I do. But as it relates to the public conversation for a person committed to public dialogue, to reconciliation, to the work of God, I fell silent. And so then my husband got to get a lot of that conversation at home when things would come on and I'd be like, ah! right, because nothing was happening in the public sphere for me. I was stuck between what are the things that I support and what are the things that I resist, but I was also not reconciled inside. Anybody else out there can say amen to that? Struggling and watching people struggle and relationships fall apart. And through that, I said, Lord, what is your word? And in the midst of that, he brought a new word, which we talked about earlier today. But he said, you got to see some old things in a new way. And that's what brings us to this book of Nehemiah. I love this book, kind of like I love me some hymns. I want to talk tonight about how the principles and content from this book relate to the work of reconciliation and justice. But here is the disclaimer. This is hard work. This will be easy for me to say, but it will be hard for us to do. Easy to say, hard to do. So here, as we begin, here is some of the context for what we will be talking about. I'm going to warn you now, this is about the book of Nehemiah. By the time that I'm done, we will have talked about so many parts of this book, but the scriptures will be up here on a slide with the major points so that if you need to go back and you want to remember that or remind yourself or post it on the wall or do something with it, you'll have it and you can get it and write it down. So Nehemiah says, then I said to them, you see, the trouble we are in, Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. As we begin the talk of Nehemiah, let us rest in the gracious hand of God upon us that we might no longer feel disgraced, that we would do the same, that we would enter this conversation in the spirit of the graciousness of God, that we too tonight start to rebuild, that we too tonight join with Nehemiah in the work of justice, in the work of racial reconciliation. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, we first come confessing that we are vessels of mixed opinion, that inside of us there is a rumble. There are things that we know to be true and there are things that we question. There are things we believe we should do and there are things that we question. That we are people in need of you. That we don't know it all, we don't have it all, we can't do it all. But we confess our love for you, our faithfulness for you, and our willingness to pick up our cross, to take on your yoke and your burden and your ease in the work of racial reconciliation and justice. I pray as your instrument that you remove every part of me that might interfere with what you want your people to hear. And I pray for them, God, that every distraction that would take them from your voice would be removed, that what will happen next, what will happen tomorrow, that what needs to happen tonight, that all of those things will be set aside, that we might hear from you, the true and living God, in whose voice and word is life and life everlasting. These things we commit ourselves to in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. So why Nehemiah? There are four things that I would say. One, let me just make my other disclaimer. This is the only one other one that I will make. It's kind of strange, right, that we're talking about a man who was building a wall a long time ago. <laughs> right? So let me first be clear. This is not a political address. I am not going to be speaking for or against walls. Now, you may take some things from this that may help you to think about the way God wants to build a wall, but it is ironic. And the Lord said, sometimes, baby, it's right there in front of you. I just need you to look a little closer. But it does speak to the relevance of what was happening for Nehemiah. But this is a conversation that is a contextual, biblical conversation designed to help us have a biblical worldview about what God cares about about what's important to God in a wall, not a political worldview, but a biblical worldview. And then we can extrapolate whatever we want about the walls that we might be trying to build in our country. Here's the other thing. Nehemiah is a type of Christ. He points us in the trajectory of Christ. He leaves a position of privilege, right? He is in a chief seat serving Artaxerxes in the Persian court as a cupbearer. He sees the racial divide, what the Persians think about the Jews. He sees inside of Jerusalem what Jews think about themselves, slavery amongst the people, not just the racial divide without, but the racial divide within. But he leaves this place of power to humble himself to be a servant. And so he points us in a typology of Christ, and he provides a model for us in our time. The two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are almost considered to be one book in the way that we should read them in the scripture. Ezra, after the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem, was concerned about the rebuilding of the temple, the place of worship. Nehemiah was concerned about the rebuilding of the city of God, the place where the people found protection and identity so that they could worship in peace. And so together they tell a story. This is what's interesting. The city of God is no longer confined to a set of walls. God's church is amongst all nations. Also, 1 Corinthians 3 and 16 tells us, where is the temple today? In us. 
This is the way, this is the way it's written. Don't you know, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So I'm not here to talk tonight about a building project. Besides, you've got a pretty one anyway. But I am here to talk about the walls of the church that are down because the church, not the little C, the big C is Jerusalem. And we are the temple. And if you didn't learn anything through this election, the Lord sat with me and he said, and her walls are down. We have been exposed to injury and we are under attack. I can't imagine another time in my life where the church has been able to be so critiqued. Now, you would have thought that our stance on slavery would have been one where we could have been critiqued. And does this time not seem to parallel the silence of our voices, the inability of our action, the way that we are stuck in this conversation? Because our walls are down. Now, this is where you might get a little uncomfortable. Because one, you're like, here's a black woman up here talking to a lot of white people. <laughs> I know there are some others of you like, out there like me. But this is where you can get uncomfortable, right? Because um, we're having this conversation, and you might immediately start to think what I care about and what I think you need to do. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't think our walls are down because our, of our position on social justice issues. We can have those conversations. I have my opinions, again. Mr. Dwight Overstreet will tell you. He's like, babe, 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 can I just hear the news? Can I hear the news? So I am not devoid of those. But this is my belief about why we are under attack. The prayer that Jesus prayed for us was about unity. And if anything is clear to the world and to the enemies of the God of all creation, it is that we lack it. And here is what I know and believe and will challenge you to. If you want to be a Christian, you cannot rest well at night when God's church is divided. You cannot go to sleep feeling good when we are separated and ununified. Race is an important topic, but it is one of many divisions amongst us. Here's going to be my one moment to preach. Get on my soapbox, Romany to one and one. Take what you want and discard the rest. <laughs> Race is not a biblical construct. Now, you can argue whether it's a social construct, a psychological construct, and I'm not saying that that means color does not exist. But in the world of the Bible, who you were was defined by your cultural identity, not the color of your skin. You can be black and be a Jew, Asian and be a Jew, Indian and be a Jew, if you were defined by the culture, why is that important to us as Christ followers? Because it does not let us off the hook for the race con conversation. In fact, it should cause us to lean in because it says that our first allegiance has to be to Christ, not to political party, not to racial party, not to social party, not to church party, but to Christ, to the God of all salvation. And that God's people must be united in order to represent him to a world that is hurting and in pain. Okay, deviated from the script, but Jesus was speaking to me. <laughs> but it, it's okay, you can clap, you can say amen, you can talk back, I am okay with it. If you even look at me funny, I might be like, brother on the front row, what is it? 
I come from a place where we can talk to one another if we need to. This is a conversation. I don't, my kids are the place where I get on my pulpit and just say stuff that nobody can respond to. But this is a conversation. So Nehemiah is a type of Christ. He points us to a model for rebuilding the wall. And there is a wall within and there is a wall without. We have to rebuild within the church a place of safety for vulnerability where difficult conversations can be had. We're not talking about tough stuff. Think of all the people you've avoided a conversation with, all the Facebook posts that you ignored, all the news that you didn't look at. Think about it. How many? Raise your hands. How many of you have avoided because we don't feel safe? What does it mean when the people of God do not feel safe to talk about the things of God? Should not be so. Not in the house of God. So we are no longer housed in the temple. God is trying to rebuild our wall. And he is trying to rebuild the wall of the church to be a place of safety for difference so that we can be a light to a dark and hurting world. We also get to see Nehemiah's faith in action and the graciousness of God, which we have to come to have a hope in. We're not acting because we don't have faith that if we do, all will be well. We're avoiding conversations for fear, not for faith. And Nehemiah points to the fact that if we can step out in faith, God will be gracious. If we can confront the, the powers, if we can move past fear to faith, God will be faithful. And I love this. The founding of the Protestant church was on five theological principles none of which can work alone. They all have to work together, and they are all bound up in this book. Can you tell I love this book? <laughs> Faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, glory to God alone. And if you see anything in the book of Nehemiah, you see a man standing on scripture, acting in faith in the typology of Christ through the grace of God for the glory of God. Something we all have to be about. Nehemiah was a man who was ahead of his time in ways that are hard to imagine. And here's the other thing. Some of you may be going, but you know what? He was building a wall like a long time ago. So what about that? <laughs> and it's all great and all, but that was a good sermon to get us started. But that was a long time ago. So let's look at Nehemiah's context. It's not as foreign as we might think. If you read this book, literally, I looked at it and went, this could be right now. Nehemiah faced economic crisis, war, homelessness, food shortage, insecure borders. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. Famine, high taxes, corrupt officials, usury. He faced division between Persia and Jerusalem amongst the people of God, military and political issues. Tobias and Sanballat weren't just people who were mad about the wall. They were people with political interest who did not like what was happening. He faced division. And we often think of, you know, in the Bible, we're like, they were just all alike. The one thing, Nehemiah was like in Switzerland. All those people were just Jewish. If you look at the chapter Nehemiah 13 and Ezra 10, you will know, and he was quite diverse. Because the scholars, the biblical leaders had to say, there's so much intermarriage going on here. Hey, people, wait a minute. Let's think about this. Let's talk about this. We don't mind people getting married, but can they become Jewish? So he was not dealing with a monolithic culture. He was dealing with a place of great diversity. 
with people coming and going from all kinds of places. And then let's say this, and he was dealing with a long history of division and fear. A hundred years, this wall has been down. We've been talking about this for three years, and we're all like, oh, God, woe is me. Oh, Lord, what's happening? What's happening? Oh, my short life. Oh, there's been death and destruction and the election, and you're already tired. <laughs> okay, like us, we've got hundreds of years of history on race. Nehemiah was dealing with the same thing. But here is the hope. In 52 days, he turned around something that had been a 100-year-old problem. What does that say for us about the power of what we can do to turn some things around? I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story because I think it's important before we go into looking at Nehemiah because I'm going to share some of the things I see in Nehemiah in my story. I was born, I didn't even know this until my brother-in-law happened to look it up. He's like, what little town are you guys from? And I was like, Eudora. And he was like, I'm going to look that up. So I'm from a town called Eudora, Arkansas. It is the poorest place in the second poorest state in the union. My God. The poorest place in the second poorest state in the union. And in this little town, it was divided by railroad tracks. White people on one side, black people on another side. And it was a sort of, it was just the way it was kind of thing. And I knew I was coming in the wrong place when I'd go on the white side of town and the dogs would chase me and then I'd get back on my side of town. And I just always felt like they always found me on my bike. Gave me a terrible fear of dogs for a really long time. And then at the end of my freshman year, when everybody wants to move, we moved here. Okay. Eudora, Arkansas. <laughs> Seattle, Washington. <laughs> Eudora, Arkansas, Seattle, Washington. And when I came here, I thought, oh, wow, it's so different. I ended up being in a class where there was, I don't know, maybe one, I think there was one white kid in my class. His name was John Borlon. And everybody else was black, and there were probably five white people or so in the entire school to a place where there were only five black people in my entire class. And found myself in a whole new world. Was the first black valedictorian my school ever had in 1991. So on the back of a cotton truck to make money in Arkansas, first black valedictorian here. That was my journey. And this was supposed to be a place where there were no railroad tracks. But here's what I found. There are railroad tracks. They're just a little bit more invisible, and we don't know exactly where they begin and end. Just a little bit more conspicuous. Why? Because let me let you at ease. We all have bias. And then let me help you out. This is something you can tell your black friends. <laughs> Everybody's got bias. It's not just white people. Everybody has bias. The challenge is not that we have bias. The challenge is that we do not confront it, that we do not acknowledge it, and that we are unaware of it. And that journey, I was reluctant. Justice, I could talk about it all day. Justice, I could do it all day. Race. I was a reluctant person for race. And I believe that is the only reason that I am here in front of you. Because I believe sometimes there's a word within the word. So here's my moment for the word within the word. White people are not the only folks reluctant to do something with race. The reluctance to do something with race is universal. And you are not the only ones who do something. If y'all all get it right, the world won't be okay. I know that's what we sometimes tell you, and I sometimes feel like that. Let me just be honest. 
God, if white people would just get it together. <laughs> but here is the other reality. I also sometimes feel like, God, if we could all just get it together, if black people would get it together. Because I know the realities of bias. And when we as the church want to do the work without, we have got to do the work within. And mine has been a journey of starting to figure out what does it mean to have this discussion, to confront the things that challenge me, to be open to a God who loves me, and to trust that he will bring me into community where I can be shaped and developed. And I encourage you, those of you who are reluctant, to begin to take the first steps, to begin to have the conversations, and let me give you a couple of things you can say. This is really difficult for me. I don't know exactly what I'm talking about. I might say something, and I reserve the right to disagree with myself. <laughs> but I care enough that I want to start somewhere. And at the end of it, I can disagree with you, but I don't have to be separate from you. But we must start talking. We must rebuild the wall. So with that, we're going to take a look at, hopefully, the Holy Spirit kind of warned me, you might get stuck in one spot, Romanita, and if you get stuck there, just stay there. But I want to look at 10 things that Nehemiah did <laughs> that I think are important. One and one, Nehemiah asked the question. He asked the question. The scripture says, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant. The word of Nehemiah. And then, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I said, what is going on? I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And their word to Nehemiah was, it's not good. Things are bad there. Everything's in ruin, and the people are in disgrace. Oftentimes, we want to come with the answers. I want to tell you how to do this. When the best thing I can tell you is ask more questions. How many times are we talking about stuff? And let's just be honest. We don't want to say, I don't know. When was the last time? How many times have you said, I don't know? Right? Not as many as you probably needed to. Can we all be honest? <laughs> right? We live in a world that prescribes that we should know when we don't. And if we are not willing to ask the question first, we sometimes head down really wrong roads. You ever been in a conversation with somebody about race and then realize you were in water that was way too deep? Right? Perfect moment to ask a question. Well, what exactly do you think about that? What has been your experience of that? Talk to me about how you see that. If we as a community could start to ask more questions and better questions, we could get farther. But here is the thing that asking, what asking questions requires. Humility. The willingness to admit that we don't know. Because I had to ask God, God, what am I going to say to all these white people? <laughs> I have some humility. I don't live in their world. I don't quite get them all the time. I don't know what they're struggling with. I don't. But you do. And so it's not just the questioning of others, but the questioning of God. How many times in our prayers have we gone to God with the question, Lord, show me, teach me, help me. Over the last six to eight months, that has been my constant refrain. Lord, show me, teach me, help me. Caring in action. Earlier today, we were talking about the fact that it says, Nehemiah sat down and wept. And then he confesses to the Lord. He confesses for the people. 
it's one thing to feel like you should care about racial reconciliation and justice. It's another thing to actually care to the point that you will weep, to care to the point that you will cry. And if you are not there, then you have to say, Lord, what is happening in my heart? That the state of these things, what do I not understand yet that I am not drawn? And if you disagree that you should, with me that you shouldn't be crying, I'm up here now, so I'm going to say you should. But we live in a society where we have to recognize for some, we don't have to be worried about this. This is not central to the gospel. But when we pray, Lord, let my heart be broken by the things that break your heart. When cops and kids are shot in the street, the church used to be the place of nonviolence. And now most research would say we're the place that has more people buying guns than ever before. Our heart should be broken at these things. The question we have to honestly ask ourselves is, and the thing we have to honestly say, if it's not, then why? We must have awareness that leads to empathy, not blindness that leads to fault finding. We have to have solidarity that leads to true compassion and not difference that leads to separation. These are the foundations of mercy. And in the absence of mercy, forgiveness is hollow. Then the external work of reconciliation can begin. Then we can lock arms with other people to want to do something for those outside the walls of the church. We see Nehemiah steadfastly praying day and night, real emotion. And by the time he goes to his boss and talks about it, he takes three days off of work. He says, I'm going to do something about it. Can you give me three days off so I can go and kind of survey the land? Because when we really care, we can be moved to action, not compelled to action. <clears throat> Eyes to see. He sees himself and the people. Oftentimes, and I feel bad, this is going to be a moment where I'm actually going to, I hope this is going to help you. I feel bad for the rap that white people get. All the injustice that everybody in the world has ever faced. Don't you sometimes feel responsible for it? Like people look at you and they're like, white people. Literally, let's be honest. Is it true? Do you feel the weight of it heaped upon you? Here is an instruction from Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not per se guilty, but he confessed for the sin. We are so lost in the argument of who's responsible that we forget that in some of the most poignant times in Scripture, both Daniel and Nehemiah said, I, Lord, am guilty. He didn't tear that wall down. He was not there. Like you didn't own a slave. I get it. I do. But he said, I raise my hand. I raise my hand, Lord. I confess the sins of my life, of my father's life, of my people. I see me. Somehow I am a part of this. I don't quite get it, but I can't be separated from it. And you know what? All the rest of us have to do that too. I raise my hand and I say, Lord, I see my people wounded, hurting, angry from generations of being thought of as less than. I see sometimes our lack of desire to be in relationship with other people. 
I see the anger that we heap on the other for the injustices that we feel in our body. And I confess my complicitness. Because I can own that. Because with God, it is not too much to own. The burden of the forbearance of slavery and racial injustice is not too much for you to bear when you bear it with God. And Nehemiah knows that. And so he is not afraid of every bad thing that has ever happened because he is in unity and solidarity with the people. Uh Uh-oh, they're going to be mad at me. I think I just hit the mic. (laughs) Facing the powers. Oh, love this chapter. Two, one through five. In the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? So, okay, you're at work. Why are you sad? You're not sick. Why? (laughs) This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, which means the king didn't say that in a compassionate way, right? He's like, I'm the king. Why are you you bringing sadness into my court, right? And now I'm scared. He's like, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. You see that awareness? I'm scared. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. I'm going to be happy for a moment. Live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Why should we not be sad when the unity of the church lies in ruins, when the place of our ancestors and the places of unity are being destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And what does the king do? Surprisingly, he says, what do you need? I'm going to let you do it. Here are some things we have to learn. In the journey to racial reconciliation and for justice, we have to face the powers in our lives. Now, thankfully, I don't think any of you are going home to Artaxerxes, so that's a good thing. But time is a power. Obligations and commitments are powers. Relationships are power. Social constraints, political parties, yep, I said it, and I'm not taking it back. Political parties are kings in our life, and we bow down to them afraid to say, I love this party. Long live the king. Long live the Republican Party. Long live the Democratic Party. But I need to rebuild the church. The unity of my the unity of the church lies in ruins. The wall is down and the place where our ancestors lay and bury, those who worked for the unity of faith is in ruins. I got to go. Yeah, I want to get out the vote. Yeah, I want that to happen. But my first citizenship is in the house of God, facing the powers, peers, authorities, all of these things. Vision plus discernment. Now, this is something that will bake your noodle. (laughs) By the time we're here, Nehemiah has done all of this, and he hasn't built one thing yet. 
How many times are we already doing the work before any of that happens? And here is where we get in trouble. You're out there trying to do the work of racial reconciliation, and here you are, black person with your white friend, white person with your black friend, and we're happy, and we got a project, and we're doing stuff. But you didn't face the powers first. And now you're trying to put your hand to the plow, and you're running into all kinds of challenges because you have not seen, you have not faced the powers, you have not put caring into action. When we wonder why these things fall apart, it's because we believe in microwave ministry, microwave reconciliation. We had a party, I got a few white friends, and ooh, it's good. I went to a multi-ethnic church, and it's good. He hadn't even laid a brick yet. Nehemiah is not even in Jerusalem surveying the wall yet. And all that has happened in those first chapters. It tells us something about who we have to be. Couple things. One, Nehemiah knows to hold back his plan. Have you ever met a person who tells you everything that they're gonna do? Nehemiah knew that there are some things you don't say. And in the work of racial reconciliation, we have to discern the timing of what we say and do. We have to recognize that there is a process that God is doing. This is not a project with a plan. And let me just say, again, I can talk to you all as white people, right? That's okay. I will just have to say, in the traditions of cultures, generally, I'm not going to stereotype you, but here's kind of a difference between like white people and some other cultures that I have generally observed. Might not be true for you as an individual, but generally, you all get a project and it's got a timeline and you're ready to mark off the steps and we're on step five and then we're going to go to step six and you're sort of enculturated that way. Whereas if you were going on the continent of Africa, you would find that African-American people kind of deal differently. You know, time is important, but it's not the ruler of everything. And I want to say this, not because we have to discern the season. Reconciliation is not a project with a timeline. It is a process of relationship building that works its way from the inside out in community. So for those of you who are already writing your 10-point plan, get by black friends, <laughs> go to do this, care, tear it up. Tear it up. I want you to tear it up. We have to get to vision and discernment. And Nehemiah realized that there were some principles. One, he needed to have a plan with God, and he needed to know when and with whom to share that plan. What he did, he didn't do it publicly first. Like you all, I love this, Scott, when you said this. The leadership has been learning, and now we're bringing together our church community. He didn't start with a press conference. Bethany takes on racial reconciliation in Seattle, just like you didn't. And we have to do the same thing. We've got to do some things in private. And as your church leads you in this journey, there are those of you have to, who have to start to do some things in private. We have to start going to some people, Nicodemus at night, hey, I don't have any black friends or Indian friends or Asian friends. As a matter of fact, my whole community looks just like me. I need to talk to somebody. Can we have a conversation? I just got to start serving in the land in private because I don't want to make any public mistakes through my declarations. And let me just say for all the black, yellow, and other people in here too, I know we feel good because we're always in places, and you, in Seattle in particular, you're always in places with people who aren't like you. It's just the way it is. But we've got to go have some conversations too. Let me give you an example of mine. I'm kind of out of the rust belt, and I went... I haven't had a conversation with a person in a rural town in a long time. 
something happened in America. I gotta go have a discussion. Because from my vantage point, the Latino dreamers and the Black Lives Matter and the white people of the rural South have something in common. America's not working for them, but they think they're enemies when they're not. So what does it mean for me to begin to go, what does it mean for those people who might think my people and my kind are the very reason there's a challenge in this country to go, I need to have a conversation with somebody. And I'm not about to, I just announced it to you, but it's for illustration purposes only. <laughs> but I've got to go have that conversation because we have to discern, not just have vision, but invite the Holy Spirit to help us to know. And then he built credibility. And that's when we get to the passage we started in where they say, let's go build the wall. So when we want to say, let's go build something, we just got to make sure we've done all the work to get there, to build appropriately. Engage the people. This is the one where the Lord said, you may not get past this, and my time tells me I may not, but I'm okay with it. Chapter 3 in the book of Nehemiah is a beautiful thing. Anybody ever seen chapter 3 in the book of Nehemiah? It's basically this long list of people, everybody who built the wall. Now, here's what's great about this list of people. It's everybody. It's noblemen, it's priests, it's um, businessmen, it's women, it's migrants and immigrants. I mean, it's everybody building the wall. I mean, if you want to talk about a person who could bring together a diverse group of people to do something, it was Nehemiah. And here's one of the just general rules. Diverse groups take longer to get stuff done, typically, but they typically do it better. Heterogeneous groups actually typically can move quicker but the product is, all, is often inferior because you don't have the diversity of thought. Here, you've got a man who took a diverse group of people and did something fast. Again, did I not say Nehemiah is bad? <laughs> B-A-D, bad. But here is a bigger part of the God story that's happening in the book of Nehemiah. Scholars for a long time asked the question, why this list in the middle of the story? It just seems kind of long. Ezra does the same thing in this list of people called out by name. There are 38 distinct people called out by name. There are seven neighborhoods. That's what the gates kind of represent. And there are like 42 to 44 work teams that Nehemiah calls out. This is why. Anybody ever decided to read the Bible all the way through <laughs> and start it kind of in the Torah and Kings? you're going to know what I'm talking about. And then you hit that point where I call, it's the if you want to go to bed part. Right? <laughs> it's that long list where they're talking about the temple, and you like, it's five cubits by four, and three to five, and it was a piece of wood, and it was eight feet long. And right? Anybody ever been there? And you're like, right? The reason Ezra and Nehemiah focus so much on the people in the story is because they're reflecting a move of God to where the work of God is not in the physical structure, but it's in the people. And these lists that they use are a literary device to draw you back to their parallel, to say, it's no longer about this. And today, we kind of know that. You're like, yeah, 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 we get that. But do we get that? Because we know that God is out there. But do we often remember that he is not coming back for a church? It will be the church. And the unity that he wants from his people is so important. Nehemiah has asset-based thinking. 
He's not a deficit thinker. He's looking out at the opportunity that exists in the diversity and the situation around him. How many of us, when we wake up, I mean, you can be honest. When you woke up in the midst of the election, you were not like, oh God, there's so much opportunity for goodness out there. <laughs> Some of you are sitting here right now going, oh God, there's not enough opportunity for goodness out there. But we have to become people who are asset-based, who in the rubble see the goodness of what God can do. In the remnant and in the disgrace of it all, see what God can do. Nehemiah saw that. Nehemiah points to Christ. To this place where he says, not only will my temple be in you, but if my temple is in you, my spirit is in you. And if my spirit is in you, my power is in you. And no level of darkness can hide it or keep me from doing my work. But we have to be ready and available. Ready and available. Protect the process. Now, I love this. We live in a society where Satan is like a dirty word. You ever walk down the street? How many times you talk about Satan or the devil in regular conversation? <laughs> anybody had any conversations about principalities and powers recently <laughs> with anybody? Right? This reflection reminds us that this process will be fraught with enemies. And if we do not stand on the wall working and warfaring, and here's the reality, we are not fighting people. Whatever you think about President Trump, you're not fighting him. Whatever you thought about Hillary Clinton, you're not fighting her. Whatever you thought about any of them, we're not fighting them. We are fighting a spirit in the world. Principles and powers that say that some of us are good and some of us are not. That say that unity amongst us is not important. And we are fighting those things. But some of us are not fighting. We put down our guns. It's too hard. I'm too tired. But I said today in the staff meeting, the Lord said, you got to get your big girl armor. You know how they talk about your big boy pants? He's like, you got to get your big girl armor. Right? To walk in the midst of reconciliation, your feet must be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I said, God, I need bigger shoes because I'm stepping in a lot of stuff. <laughs> Pardon? A lot of You're going to step in stuff. And I'm not just talking about landmines. I'm talking about some stuff, as the young people say. <laughs> so we have to become acquainted with what it means to warfare and to warfare for one another to warfare for the process. If you all begin this journey, I tell you now, warfare will increase against you. And your need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit and to understand how to fight the battle spiritually is important. Because everything would have fell down if Nehemiah didn't understand how to resist the enemy and to be prepared for attack. That is why we find ourselves in the process of racial reconciliation and then find ourselves fighting with people. Wait a minute, we've agreed to do this project. Rodney King, can't we all just get along? But we end up fighting each other and not the underlying things that warfare against us. And that takes a deep reliance on the Holy Spirit because you have no power on your own to fight. We are in constant need. 
of God. And one of the things I love about the wall, he said, we were spread out. We had a horn. You need to be able to call out for help. Blow your horn. You will find yourself in places on the journey of racial reconciliation. There's a point where Nehemiah realizes we're under attack. And he says, you know what? We're not connected enough to know when somebody's in trouble. You ever felt that during this season? Did you realize how far away you were from some people and that they might be in trouble on this journey? He said, we got to have some methodologies for calling out to one another saying something's going on on this wall and I need some help in this process and in this journey. I need you to come and pray with me. I need you to come and talk with me. I need you to help me figure out how to have that conversation with my brother or my sister. I need you to help me figure out how to engage in this issue because I'm committed to staying on the wall. Lastly, he surrounded the process in prayer. Prayer is like an afterthought, but everything Nehemiah does starts with prayer. I mean, it's like Nehemiah, I felt like Nehemiah's person, God, I'm going to have toast. Lord, God, should I have the toast? I mean, that's how much prayer is throughout this book. And so as you begin this process, pray to the Lord on every hand. And then, and there's, so there's a lot of principles there, right? Here is the last one. <laughs> Nehemiah wasn't lost in the building project. He knew that the building project was just the start of what God was trying to do in the people. And so this is what I want to say about this sermon. Don't get lost in the sermon. There's a lot of points, but it is just the start of what God is trying to do in you, in your heart, and in your journey. And so I want to pray for you that as you go about this work, you can look to the rest of Nehemiah where the work of God in reconciling his people actually begins. So we saw in chapter two, Nehemiah started the project. When Nehemiah finished it, it was just a wall. He knew the real work was in the people and so I wanna pray for the work that has to happen in you. Dear God, these are your people on your journey in the midst of your call. Bless them. Empower them, fill them to overflowing with your spirit. Show up in their lives in ways that they could never expect. I pray against the adversary and every power of darkness that will now target them and the hope that they have in you. We lean on the power of your spirit that overcomes. And I pray, Lord, that this church, that these people are transforming powers because they look within and they look without. Bless them and give them favor. Speak to them and raise up a standard in them. Do miracles in their heart and in their lives. And we will trust you for that, that we might be people of mercy and of grace and of compassion who love you and who love the other beyond all natural understanding. And we will thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, my name is Prentice. I am uh, the lead pastor at our Bethany West Seattle location. 
I, and I get to be the co-chair along with Pastor Scott here for our Racial Reconciliation Initiative for Bethany as a whole. And it's been such a privilege to be a part of that and to see our church and not just our church, but our staff grow and learn and seek and become passionate about what God is calling us to be passionate about. Uh, and tonight we get to hear from others. And when Romanita brought up the first principle of ask questions, I thought about this time that we're about to have is that we get to hear from people uh, from different experiences, different backgrounds, uh, and, and just simply ask questions. And, and our desire is that uh, as a church, we'll see and we'll hear the stories of people uh, that are living this out in our own church here at Bethany. Uh, and so I get a chance to moderate this, uh, this opportunity, this, this event in this time, along with Jessica Miller. Uh, and so what we'll do is we'll start off uh, with them just introducing themselves, uh, and they're going to tell us their name, how long they've been part of Bethany, uh, and which location they represent. My name is Alicia Beckford-Wasink, and uh, my family and I have been attending Bethany for about eight years, I think. Um, we attend the Northeast location. My name is Benjamin. Um, I go to Bethany North, and... Me and my fiance and two kids have been going there for about a year, over a year and a half, I think, maybe. Yeah, you correct me on that, man. I don't know. Hi, my name is Ted Neal. I've considered Bethany my home for uh, three years now, and I come to the uh, Green Lake location. I'm Taylor Greer, and I've come to Bethany here at Green Lake for 12 years and have just started going to West Seattle this summer. And my name is Jessica Miller, and I have been worshiping here at Green Lake for the past six years, and I've been on staff for about a year and a half now. Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, we only have just a few minutes, uh, and so we made this introduction very brief. But uh, as you walked in, you should have received this piece of paper here, uh, and you'll learn a little bit more about our panelists today. Uh, and I hope that even after this, you'll have an opportunity to ask questions, more questions. Uh, and so our first question that we want to start off with, uh, and this is for everybody here, uh, is the question of what was your, uh, what was your catalytic event uh, that caused you to become uh, so passionate and so desiring uh, this conversation around racial reconciliation? Uh, and so for a lot of us here, we, we use this word catalytic event. Uh, we've been using this word a lot that represents this idea of this aha moment. And I really do believe we all have this catalytic event, whether we know it or not. And it's this question of where and what happened in, in our lives, in your life, in your life, that could tell us this story about racial reconciliation and our need to do something about it. So this aha moment, what was that for you guys? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I would have to say, and it's funny that um, she actually stated in her speech that she was one out of like four people, uh, excuse me, like white school that she said and went to, I was in the same situation. Um, but my family actually kind of gave me a prep talk, uh, which I found kind of funny. Um, I came from a place called Stockton, California, um, and that's a pretty rough area. Um, and in Stockton, California, pretty much, uh, I was going to a place called Scotts Valley, California, and that's known as a suburban area. Um, I was, I think there was four black people in the school, and so before I got there, my family would tell me, watch out for those white people. Don't trust them. They literally repeated that over. I laughed the first time. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and then they kept just repeating it. And um, 
that kind of opened my eyes to that point of view, and then it kind of turned when I got pulled over three times walking down the street. Um, but at the same time, uh, in that moment, it was an eye-opener to how good um, culture is, uh, because there's, there's culture in, in race, and a lot of times we look over that. Um, but um, what we call the white people, <laughs> um, I say European, um, they actually supported and changed my life forever. Um, and it goes vice versa. Um, so, yeah, that was an eye-opener. Um, a catalytic moment for me happened um, a few years ago. Uh, so in my family, though race could have been talked about um, because my mom is white and my dad is black, it wasn't talked about. Um, I was told we're all God's children, so color doesn't matter. And I internalized that as being um, other people don't see me as different. I don't need to see other people as different. It's rude to point out differences. Um, but then in experiences in college, um, and then specifically um, I'm in seminary now, um, encountering the way that um, Jesus's particularities matter in the way that we understand Jesus made me wonder if mine might also matter to my story. Um, and, and so that was all the, the work up to the catalytic moment was um, in the community that I'm involved in, um, we had an opportunity to ask questions of um, one of the leaders. And I asked a question about race because I'd just been prepped in class and I forgot that communities that I'm a part of haven't been having these conversations. So my question kind of caught people off guard. And um, the way that the question was answered was to, um, the leaders had a, a specific person. So if I would have had somebody stand up in the audience to say, hey, when I look at that person, I don't see the color of their skin. And when I heard him, him say that about somebody who I know and who I, I know when he said that to her, that discounted her story. Um, and saying that color doesn't matter is saying that somebody's story doesn't matter. And that's not, and I realized that's, that's not okay. And it made me start thinking, what's another way of looking at this so that we're not afraid of saying that differences are important? Um, and that, that led me to asking questions um, specifically about myself and then has, has moved me towards other people as well. Uh, for me, it happened about uh, 20 years ago when I was still in college. And um, I should preface this by saying that uh, I think I had in my head a kind of a checklist of why I, I'm not a racist person. Um, you know, I, um, I don't chew tobacco. Um, I do not own a Confederate flag. Um, I don't have a gun rack or a pickup truck to put that gun rack in. And um, I, I've never used the N-word. Um, and so I was ready for my non-racist um, certificate or trophy. Um, and so I'm, I'm in college. I'm in the car with my friend Rashid, who is black. He's, he's my black friend. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're at a traffic light, and we're in Georgetown. Uh, you know, a lot of rich college kids walking around. And we're, you know, while we're sitting at this red light, you know, there's these, you know, people crossing in front of the car. And, you know, a white student walks by, and Rashid and I keep talking. Another white student walks by. A couple more walk by. Um, and then a black student walked by. And I locked the door. And, uh, and Rashid, Rashid and I, just, uh, I'll jump to the end. We're still friends. We've been friends 20 years. Um, you know, and in no small part, you know, thanks to his graciousness towards me. 
Um, but, uh, you know, he laughed, and, uh, and then he kind of, you know, started a conversation. But I also, looking back on that, I'm just aware of, um, you know, what kind of moment that was like for him to have to swallow that pain and hurt and then have to take on the extra job of educating me, of, you know, of with that, you know, my own ignorance. So I just think for me, it just it made me recognize in that moment it was catalytic for me that, uh, um, oh, I'm, I'm a nice guy, check. I'm a Christian, check. I'm a racist, maybe. You know, that there's not this separation. And we, ha- we have to recognize that we can uh, we call ourselves Christians, but um, I can think of myself as a nice guy, but it didn't stop me from doing a deeply racist and hurtful thing someone I really cared about. I think for me, in the context of my experience at Bethany in particular, a catalytic event that was really important it happened at a local outreach team meeting for me in 2015, when one of the members of the committee asked whether class discrimination might be more important than racial discrimination. Um, she said, isn't racism waning in the US? After all, we just elected our first black president. And aren't racism's effects more subtle these days? You know, and I, I think that both of these isms are real. But for me, I realized that there was no question that racism felt like a life and death issue and that it was more insidious in some ways. Um, but I didn't know how to express that at the time. I wondered why there was such a split, why there felt like there was such a gulf in our American culture when it came to opinions around the reality of racism. And I spent nearly a month after that, I would say, writing an essay on race and the notion of subtlety. I'm a linguist, I teach at the UW, I've been on the faculty for almost 20 years, and so as a good linguist, I decided to delve into the language. I struggled with the term subtlety, and I realized that it is one of those words like cleave that has two opposite meanings. Um, On the one hand, it can mean insidious or many-pronged or something that's really complex and hard to get a handle on, um, and sneaky. The other meaning can be that something is insignificant, a distinction without a difference, something that we can ignore. Um, And to me, racism is the first type of of subtle that meant insidious, that meant sneaky. Um, For me, you know, my family's context was one where in the 1930s, 1940s, 60s, 70s, an armed black man in my family had been killed. My mother's uncle, Russell, had been killed in Philadelphia. Um, Another uncle named Muster had been killed in Virginia. And so for me, personal tragedies, like for many black people, were not new. And then, you know, we fast forward 82 years or something to 2012, 2015, and we had the high-profile shooting deaths, again, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Mike Brown, police deaths. The split was showing up again for me, and I was seeing many Americans that seemed to wonder if these young men were somehow thugs, while their families were mourning them as loving people who cared for their families, who were looking out for their siblings, who had bright minds and bright futures cut short. You know, and this day, today, I have cousins who are actually struggling to remain gainfully employed, contributors to their own families' lives. I'm a black mother raising a black son. I have a lot of friends who are moms 
who worry about what their child will be when that child grows up. But for many black moms, we wonder whether our children will grow up today, 2017. So at the time, I was crying. I was crying a lot. I felt emotionally spent. I felt really heartbroken, and I felt scared. Um, so uh, my husband and I started a monthly group at Bethany Northeast to try to do our part to show up in an effort to find ways to try to address what's a really complex problem. And that was our catalytic event, and we keep trying to show up. Thank you so much for the vulnerability to share with us um, as a community these events that stick so closely to home, um, and yet for some, we're now just hearing about some of these things, so thank you for that. Um, and Benjamin, I want to uh, pivot to you. So it's been pointed out by many, Romanita touched on it, that Bethany is home to a lot of white people, that it's... Um, and it often has led to a characterization that this is a white church or a majority white church. And uh, I just want to ask what your experience has been as a person of color to call Bethany home, what that means for you. Okay, so I guess I don't got to point out the elephant in the room. Um, <laughs> so uh, my experience at Bethany actually, uh, it's been a, like I said, life changer for me um, just as a mixed blood child. <laughs> uh, my dad is, you know, black. My mom is of Basque and Norwegian, she actually looks white. Um, so it's kind of a funny story when people actually, you know, see me next to her and I say, that's my mom. Um, but um, my experience at Bethany has, has been great. Um, just with a lot of opportunities with uh, uh, people who have actually reached out to me um, and just kind of helping me along my journey. Um, me and my fiance actually getting married July 8th. Uh, a lot of people at this church have literally stated, in fact, how they can contribute, whether it be prayer or whether it be their involvement within the wedding itself. And also, I uh, just want to state this too while I have time. Um, because I'm the type of person, and I say I walk blind. Um, I say that figuratively and literally. Um, I don't have my glasses on, so I can't see you know, time-wise. So, <laughs> um, but, okay, thank you. <laughs> but um, the reason why I say I walk blindly uh, I'm not saying I look past everything. I'm saying I walk blindly because I don't try to look at a person right off the bat and try to determine who that person is before I meet them. And that actually came from my life into that school. And you know, that's, that's kind of hard for me to say, like, you know, white or black, you know, because I feel like we all have a cultural root to us. Um, and we like to just cover that up with two different colors, uh, which I kind of find amazing. Um, but and I say it like this, if you are walking blindly, if, you, if, put every, if everybody in this room was blind, let's actually say literally blind, and everybody were to speak or look around, you wouldn't see color. You know, you would hear the voice of the person next to you. I'm not sure, I'm not a blind man like fully, but you know, I can't say as a blind man I wouldn't determine, oh, that, that person sounds black, or that sound, the person sounds white, his name is Ben, he must be white. <laughs> you know? like, so if you're walking blindly, in a spiritual aspect, you are taking the time to actually um, look to God's word, you know, look to God's beauty, look to the person that God created. And it's just like Creole Crayons. There's so many colors out there. You can't just say, oh, this is black and this is white. There is things in between, and we need to look in between things. So. 
Thank you. And kind of transitioning to the other side of that coin, um, Ted, I'm hoping that you can unpack for us a little bit about white privilege and what that means. That's a big word, so hopefully you can uh, clear that with some people. And how um, is it or should it be changing uh, white people's posture in this conversation of race and justice? And hopefully you could talk a little bit about what you're currently doing um, and speaking into this conversation. Sure. Um, just uh, I'll start with the and uh, what, what I'm currently doing is um, we've started a community group uh, here at Green Lake, uh, and it seems like there's a lot of uh, uh, parallel groups at different locations of where we meet once a week and we are discussing uh, issues of race, reconciliation, and how it impacts our spirituality. Um, and you know, my wish is that all these groups continue um, as kind of um, places where we can, can move these conversations forward and um, contribute to the community. Um, in terms of white privilege, um, it, you know, it's really a concept I've only started to get my head around as we've been doing these uh, these meetings. But uh, you know, a quick you know back the envelope uh, definition. As I say, just you know, these are social um, or societal privileges or access to resources, um, social capital um, that, that benefit people identified as white. That um, the people who do not identify as white do not have access to. Uh, something to remember is just, you know, these are things that are unearned. These are things that are often passive. And just in my own experience, you know, this has led to me, like, when I see police around, I feel safe. Um, and it, it wasn't until I was in college I realized, oh, people have fundamentally different perceptions of the police based on their skin color. Um, I've also never been put on the spot say, hey, Ted, what do, what do white people think of this? Um, it's always, Ted, what do you think of this? Um, and that in itself, I think, is a form of privilege because so many of my friends who are people of color are often asked to, oh, you know, tell us what black people think of this. And somehow their, their individual identities are race and they're seen as part of this monolithic um, identity group. So that's just in, in my experience kind of how white privilege has um, impacted me. And in the, in the short time I have left, I just say that how it enters into the conversations um, that, we're, that I know we're having in our, our groups uh, here. And um, I think you have to enter in with kind of a, a, a double consciousness. Um, you know, a lot of us have this idea of, you know, oh, I see myself as a certain way and that's how everyone sees me. But I think you have to start to recognize that um, there's ways that people see you that don't match with your internal picture. Um, how people perceive you because of uh, maybe a legacy and a history uh, that comes along with our skin color, um, whether we like it or not. Um, and I think finally, just um, as we move forward in these discussions, um, sometimes if you're a person coming from privilege, especially you know being a white male, um, sometimes I think I need to contribute just by shutting up and um, learning to sit with the discomfort and powerlessness and um, of just being quiet. Taylor, this, this question is for you. Uh, Taylor, as a, as a person of faith, and I've been getting to know you, and uh, not only as a person of faith, but as a, even a seminarian who studies theology and the scriptures, um, how does all of that inform your understanding of reconciliation and what that means as a person of faith? Um, I'll be very excited to share more about this when I finish my degree in June. Um, but it's the work that I'm doing um, as I'm working on my project. So um, 
I'm glad to be able to share now too in, in process. Um, but the main thing is that um, reconciliation is God's work. So it's like how Nehemiah didn't start out with like, this is the blueprint that I've created for this wall that we're building. Um, reconciliation is God's work. God called the people of Israel in the first place. That's how they were able to have a city. Um, and, and reconciliation is something that we're able to participate in because Jesus initiated it in coming and being God with us. Um, so reconciliation is God's work that we are then able to join in with. Um, and then uh, I guess also similarly with what you shared, um, that uh, reconciliation starts with the work that I uh, receive. So I receive the invitation that Jesus is giving to me, the work that God is doing in my life, the ways that the Holy Spirit is equipping me. And then that influences every single relationship that I have with other people because God's desire in reconciliation isn't just my solo relationship with God, but is all of creation. Like God's, God's kingdom isn't just about my solo relationship with God. That would be a very lonely <laughs> kingdom to live in, just me by myself. God's kingdom is about all of creation. Um, so the Holy Spirit's work is something that's drawing all things in, relation, in right relationship with God. Um, a way that I've liked um, to envision reconciliation, uh, it's great that we're sitting at a table, is that reconciliation happens at the table. It's, it's table work um, where like we're here together, not any one of us owning it. Like somebody set this up and, and we're, we're here because we're agreeing to be here. I, I might pretend like this is my table and you all just happen to be in my graces and so I'm allowing you to be here. But, but that's not real. Um, what's real is that we've all been invited to share here together. And n I'm not dictating what you're saying. You're not dictating what I'm saying. But when I come with a willing heart, then I'm able to receive from you. You're able to receive from me. And then as trust is built and safety is built, even if I'm having my worst day, I know I can still show up at this table and be supported and safe, um, and that God works in that space too. Um, and I know the, the kind of parties that Jesus throws are the best kind of parties, and that's where I want to be, and I think that that's what the table of reconciliation is like. Amen. Yeah, that's such a good word. Can we get an amen for that? That was real. That was a real word for us. Thank you. Alicia, I want to come to you with our last question, and... Just ask, what do you hope for our community as Bethany Community Church as we move forward with this? Yeah, I think I really resonate with uh, a vision articulated by Greg Yee, who is superintendent of the Evangelical Covenant Church, the Pacific Northwest Conference of that. He talked uh, in February at Quest Church on um, why faith and race matter. And he articulated five questions that churches can ask themselves that start with the letter P. So the first one was population. Are we increasing in diversity to reflect the, our surrounding community? The second one is participation. So are diverse people taking part represented in the life of the church? The third one is power. Is there diversity throughout the levels of church leadership? Fourth was pace setting. Are diverse leaders setting the pace of congregational life? And then finally, purposeful storytelling. I love this one. Um, are the experiences of all participants being heard, believed, and validated in our church? Um, I'd say that in our group at Northeast, two of these, participation and maybe purpose, purposeful storytelling, are, have been taking root. 
And so my hope is that we can continue to grow in these and as a larger Bethany community um, that we could live into all of those more broadly. Our first wrestling with racial reconciliation family dinner at Northeast took place two years ago. It's going to be two years this Wednesday, March 8th. We've been meeting for two years. And I am so thankful for all of the people who are in the group. It started with 10 people in my husband's in my living room. And I said 34 on this handout, but I counted again this morning. It's actually 41 people meeting every month in our living room. <laughs> but um, we've been learning how to have courageous conversations together about race and faith. We've been asking hard questions. We've been learning to listen. We've been learning to challenge and love, um, to apologize when necessary, and how to recognize when we're guilty of microaggressions. We've been telling our personal stories. Um, we've been trying to understand how they've shaped us and how they've shaped us differently from each other, how God has moved in our lives, what our concerns are. You know, there are minority groups at Bethany who have a very deep tradition of lament, and I think that there's a lot that we can learn about how to lament together, particularly when our country is so broken and when the split that I talked about earlier is showing up. We've also shared music together. I would love to share more diverse music together at Bethany. Um, music is a very deep shaper of our souls. It reflects communal expressions of God showing up in our lives. I would love to see more of that be part of our life together. Um, and yes, we've been sharing food, everything from fried chicken to kalbi to lumpias to Jamaican jerk chicken. Um, and that's an important part of who we are too. And then finally, I'd like to say that for people of color like me, I hope that we can continue to find courage to show up for the conversation. Um, you know, whether we've been sharing and living our stories together for a long time and we feel tired, or whether we are just discovering our stories and figuring out what we have to contribute. I just would pray that my brothers and sisters would find a way to stick with it and to grow. With that said, I just want to say I'm so thankful that we've had this opportunity and to uh, be able to ask you all questions and, and thank you for your vulnerability and just your willingness to share and to show up and to be at the table to help us understand better your experience in order for us to understand also um, on how to act and how to love and, and how to be curious. And so uh, although this time was short, uh, my encouragement <clears throat> to all of us is that we will continue to ask questions as well that questions don't have to stop tonight right here. Uh, but who are the people that uh, you don't necessarily go out and reach out to or feel comfortable with even? I think those are the very people that we need to go out and ask questions and have lunch with and have coffee with. And so I guess that's my encouragement uh, for all of us tonight, and that's including myself. And so I'm so proud of you all. I'm so proud of Bethany. I'm so proud of being part of Bethany Community Church. Um, this may surprise you, but I am also a person of color. And uh, I know, shocking. And I pastor a church, Bethany, predominantly white congregation. Uh, and that's a very unique and interesting experience that I've been navigating through. But I have been so proud and, and so uh, honored to pastor that church who have loved me, 
who have accepted me, and vice versa. And it's been such a growing and learning experience for all of us as I ask questions, as they ask questions for me. And so I want that to be kind of the mantra of our church here at Bethany, that we're curious and we love enough to ask questions and to feel uncomfortable ourselves in order to love who we deem as the other. So thank you all for being here. I'm going to give it up to Pastor Scott to... I just yeah. to say something really fast. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, just about the questions. I encourage you to ask questions about yourself as well. Just, And I guess I want to say that specifically because that's how my story started, that I wondered, like, why don't I know things about my identity or what are the things that form my identity? So about my racial, ethnic, and cultural identity. And then as I learned that story about myself, uh, it made me aware of how each person has that kind of story and how that's something that I can learn from them too. So your questions could be external questions or they could be internal ones. So um, you can go either or both ways. Yeah, that's good. Let's give him another round of applause. All right, well, uh, thank you again for being here. And as we kind of take a turn from home, the question is, where do we go from here? And um, we have, uh, we're going to end in prayer time, and then Pastor Richard will uh, close us in the singing of the doxology and a benediction. Uh, before we pray, just a note about when you got in here, hopefully most of you received this, this next step, let's stay in touch. We really would appreciate if you fill that out before you're leaving, and we'll have ushers that can collect this. We want to send you a survey and tell or ask you rather about your experience and next steps and who would like to be involved. And uh, this, we hope, is a dynamic process. We want your voice to be heard. Um, I will tell you, as you know, many of you, it, it, this fall we, we worship together in one building, thousands of people, hundreds of volunteers, a hundred years as a church, very special moment. I think this evening, my heart wells with even more pride for the 600 or so of you gathered here this evening, because you're willing to have this hard conversation. This is what God wants, is to, to build us up. Uh, like Romanita said, the wall is down, and, and Christ's prayer is for us to be people of great hope and people of unity. And so what we're going to do before Pastor Richard comes to close us is we're going to turn uh, with just a group of two or three people who we're sitting with and have a time of prayer, and Romanita is going to kind of frame that for us. I just want to encourage the Lord is speaking. I hear you. And um, one of the things the Lord impressed upon me is that um, this particular work, there's lots of things we can do in the church, and we don't have to show up by name and be identified. But this particular work, like the, like the book of Nehemiah in chapter 3, requires us to show up by name, to be willing to be seen in the context of community. And a question I want you all to ask yourself that the Lord, I was sitting there, I was like, Lord, I've already talked. I'm not getting back up. Get up. So I look over to Scott and go, I got to say something. Um, is if Bethany is in the catalog of books that God would write, are you willing to have your name be in chapter three? To be identified in person as someone who stepped out to do the work of racial reconciliation in the context of your community and your world and your life. Are you willing to have your name in chapter three? There's a lot of other stuff that you can pray about, but I think that is the big question for you all as a church and for you as individuals. Thank you. So we're going to take just two minutes. Say your name in groups of two, three, or four. Are you willing to have your name in that chapter? And then have one person in your group just kind of grab hands, wrap arms, and pray with people you're sitting around, strangers, people sitting around you, behind you, and then we'll close our time. Please, let's have a moment of prayer together as God's people.
Please join me in prayer. Let's pray together as a community. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for what you've done tonight. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that is moving among us individually in our hearts, Father, as we've received powerful words from you and collectively as your people. And now we pray together, Lord Jesus, that you would give us eyes to see the other, your eyes. Uh, Lord Jesus, would you give us curiosity and courage uh, to cross divides, to enter into relationships? Would you give us humility as learners? Would you give us both individually and collectively as your people ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, next steps to take? Our desire, Father, is to be nothing less than shaped by you in order that the reconciling power of the gospel would flow through us in new ways, unknown to us to this very moment. So speak to us, Father. Ears to hear, we pray. And most significant, Father, uh, hearts to respond to your direction to the end that your church would be built up and that the light of Christ would shine with greater clarity in our city, our nation, and our world. We thank you for, the, for all that awaits as we follow you in these things. And uh, we're so profoundly grateful for your patience with us. Thank you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Invite us to stand together as we sing the doxology. Let's sing. Praise God from whom And as we uh, leave this evening, I'll just uh, express gratitude to all of you uh, for being here tonight. Scott said there were about 600 in the room. Actually, Eric lost count at 775. <laughs> so that, uh, that many people have gathered for this conversation is hugely significant to me. Yeah, it's significant. And I want to thank you. I also especially want to thank uh, Scott and Prentice. Uh, our whole staff worked hard on this, but you two have been at the front on this, raising the conversation, pushing the conversation, motivating us. So thank you, and can we give them a round of applause as well? And Romanita, your words... Uh, They were significant, significant. I want to thank you. Uh, we met this morning, you spoke in chapel. Jack and I were chatting it up and came in a little bit late, but uh, uh, you, you won our hearts in a powerful way. So thank you for that. Okay. I'm to Benedict. And I leave you with a word from our friend, the Apostle Paul, who says this. Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With humility, gentleness, patience, 
Showing tolerance for one another in love. And being diligent and working hard to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. May you go forth as people embodying that unity as we build up the wall that is the testimony of Christ in our families, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our church, our city, our nation, and our world. Go forth as people of hope in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll remind you now that there will be prayer team members available here for you. And if God's been speaking to you this evening, there's something you want to pray over or pray with someone, they're here with you. Go in peace. Thank you for joining us this evening. You're dismissed.